This message first aired on the radio on October 16, 2003. So we don't have anything to sell here. I know after my remarks from a few days ago, probably people curious about a line of clothing that I might bring up because, as I said, I'm a very snappy dresser. You know, maybe even hairstyle or hair piece because I have great hair. I know I say that, and I probably am building interest out there, but we don't sell any of that, so don't ask me for my my hairdo. Uh, don't ask me for my clothing line because though I am a snappy dresser, I'm just keeping that to myself. And I'll have to say this, I also dress special for the radio broadcast because you can't just go on radio looking any old way. And so I do have special fashion that I keep for my radio broadcast. Now, we're studying the Word of God, and so we don't want to talk too much about things that don't matter. Some may ask me why I even discuss that. Well, I wanted to make sure you didn't think I was Elijah, who didn't dress well, or uh, Elisha, or Elisha whose hairdo left something to be desired, at least by a lot of the ladies. But um, I don't think I'm either one of those guys, but I do believe this about myself. You know, some people say, well, we like to hear a little bit about you, not too much. I'm a teacher of the Bible. I'm a Bible teacher. A certain fellow on the radio who, in many ways I admire, and in many ways I don't, well, in in a few ways I don't, but in many ways I had admired for years, was uh, Rush Limbaugh, who's had this recent setback in his life called sin. And uh, one of his phrases, and I know it's all tongue-in-cheek, but he's a talent on loan from God. Well, God doesn't lend talent, he gives it. And God made me a Bible teacher. Whether I'm a talented Bible teacher or an ordinary Bible teacher, I don't know. But God made me a Bible teacher. And I, as I... Uh, as I've proceeded through life, and I've, you know, I've got a little bit of experience now. I've blundered through 52 years of life. I realized that uh, God was making me a Bible teacher when I was a little fella, a young, young fella. Like, for example, many of you know, because I've said it, I was raised a Roman Catholic. I went to Roman Catholic school from kindergarten through 12th grade. I did the Mayflower thing with the statue. I, uh, I did square dance after kindergarten. I did phonics in first grade, Spalding phonics. I think I got a good education, but we all think we got a good education. So maybe I did, maybe I didn't. But in the course of my education, I know that I learned more from teaching than I did from being a student. And it was the case, for example, that when I was even in eighth grade, that when a teacher was sick on occasion... I'd go teach the seventh grade, and I really liked it. I'm saying this because I'm a Bible teacher, and there aren't any prophets today. There's just teachers. And uh, God formed me for a purpose, his own purpose. I happen to believe that God formed me as a radio guy because I have loved the radio for so long when I was a little fellow. I listened to talk radio. I listened to baseball. I was trying to listen to baseball games. My father was a... a radio guy in the military, and he was able to fashion radios out of stuff he had laying. All he needed was a crystal, and then the rest was stuff he had laying around. I remember he fashioned me a radio out of a crystal and a, a wire that strung to the neighbor's gutter, and a, he organized some kind of a contraption with a nut that I could slide along the wire and tune in until we had transistor radios. And uh, I would listen at night trying to listen to a baseball game. And in the course of doing that, I would listen to talk radio. So I've been a radio guy from the time I was very little.
You can do anything while listening to the radio. You can work on your car. You can clean up your house. So many things you can do while listening where you don't have to use your eyes. And another thing is I've discovered over the years, and God called me to be a preacher, I can say in 1980. Even though I preached before that, I knew the call of God in 1980. And uh, I've learned this, that the Bible was written to be heard. It was written to be read out loud, and it was written to be read so that you hear it. One of the things you learn when you speed read, if you ever take developmental reading and speed reading, you learn to stop the voice, to stop voicing out what you read. Now, when it comes to words of men, you can safely do that because the content's pretty thin anyway. But that's not a way to read the Scripture. The Scriptures need to be heard. And when you read the Scriptures, I hope you hear those words, as it were. You hear the Lord's voice. Now, I don't want to make that something mystical. It has to do with the experience of reading. God invented speech. The one who made the ear can hear. The one who made the mouth can speak. And the one who invented writing, which is God, really, can also write and read. And uh, this is the essential skills that we have for the Word of God. So we take the Word of God through enemy territory. There's a little bit about myself. Enough said. We're in the book of Second Kings, and we're studying the downfall of a great nation. In fact, we're studying the downfall of the greatest nation ever on earth, and that's the nation of Israel. And the only nation that will ever be greater than Israel was, is Israel, as it one day will be. Now let me repeat that. The only nation that will ever be greater than Israel was, is the Israel that one day shall be. Now does that mean I don't think America is a great nation? No, I think America is a great nation. Believe you me, great in every sense of the term. Great in terms of its size, I mean, bordering on 300 million people, that's a great nation by any other standard, but by that standard alone, it's a great nation. A great nation by the achievements that it has made, no question, we live in a great nation. A great nation in the terms of its influence and power with respect to other nations, its wealth, by every measure, nearly a great nation, except by today, now, the moral measure. By the moral measure, as we read the Scripture, we find out that our nation and many, many other nations are in very, very serious trouble, and that's why this study of the dispensation of the law has been so bittersweet as we look at it, because we see the mistakes that are made. We've took up the, the time of, of uh, Elijah and Elisha, for better or worse, in a summary way. And we've talked about how Elisha took the mantle of Elijah and uh, did greater works. That He did twice as many miracles, and we briefly, rapidly ran through his miracles. And also even one that was in his, that's attributable to him, though he was dead, because it happened in the sepulcher where he was buried. That was in Second Kings thirteen twenty one. It came to pass as they were burying a man that behold, they spied a band of men and they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. But Hazael, the king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. Now we're skipping right by some of these kings, and the reason that we're skipping by them is not that they're not important, not that they're instructive, but we just want to get through the scriptures. 
And so we're going to go ahead to Second Kings chapter 16, and we're going to read. By the way, this king of Syria is going to be a constant thorn in the side of Israel, and he's going to start becoming a thorn in the side also of Judah. So we come to the 16th chapter, and we come to Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah. And so now we're going to go over and look at the Judah side of things. And you know, the Judah side of things, they had not been as wicked as Israel, and you had hope. You had hope that that guys like Jehoshaphat, who wasn't quite, who was not nearly as bad as Ahab, that they'd keep their head above water, and Judah would sail along somehow, independent and one nation under God, even though it was just a remnant of a nation with the ten tribes under Ahab and uh, dissembling as they had. You sort of hope, if you read the drama of the Scripture, that at least Judah can keep its head above the water. But no, in fact, here we have Ahaz, who's the father of Hezekiah, and he's a fellow we want to get to, the son of Jotham. He began to reign when he was 20 years old. And, uh, of course, here's here's already a problem that we've got a 20-year-old king. We expect that's going to be a problem. Uh, we expect a 20-year-old. We expect a young man who's made a leader is going to be a problem. And the problem with young men as leaders is not only that they're unqualified, but because somebody laid hands suddenly upon them, they can never get themselves out of the trouble they get in. It's a very rare thing for me to see a man who had hands laid suddenly on him, that is to say, who was placed into a position of authority when he was too young, therefore unqualified, whoever sorts himself out and becomes a commendable leader. Generally, these make lousy leaders. Now, in the churches, for example, the churches are to be led by elders, by elders. And the first most obvious meaning of the word elder, or as a one word translated into elder, presbyteros, is an old person, an older person. Well, older than whom? Older than the rest of people. All the rest of people? No, but older. We have to break people into older people and younger people, and uh, a, an elder needs to be an older person. Well, what's an older person? Well, somebody who's raised his family. Say, how old is that? Well, pretty much got to be past 40 and mostly past 50. And in Israel, uh, soldiers were from 20 to 50 and priests were from 30 to 50. So by any stretch, here's a 20-year-old guy, he's king, and he's going to reign 16 years in Jerusalem, and that means... He starts out as a young fella, and he ends as a young fella. Now, it's funny in the Scripture, we like to call old people young people and young people old people. So we come along with David, and he's a young man when he faces Goliath in his 20s, and we like to picture him as if he's 11 or 12 years old. And then we come along to these fellows that uh, called uh, Elisha a bald head, And I'm sure Elisha, though sparse on top, had good hair on the sides. And they they mocked him and called him a bald head. And uh, even the King James Version says they're children. They're not children. They're hooligans. They're just under 40. 
they're just under 40, but 25, 30. And as, as one man who taught me said, they're seminary students, which I agree with. That's who would mock the servant of the Lord, a group of seminary students. Talked to my mother today. My mother said, how can you say that clergymen don't know their Bible? And I did not say that. I did not say that all clergymen do not know their Bible. You know, I have to listen to my mother. She knows me, keeps me sorted out certain ways. But she didn't hear me right. I did not say that. I said I have never met a clergyman that knew his Bible. Now, that's just a fact. I have not. Now, I've met fellows that other people think are clergymen that knew their Bible, but I have never met a true clergyman who knew his Bible, and uh, that's that. If you are one, if you are a clergyman who knows his Bible, and look, that's a standard. My standard's probably as low as everybody else's about knowing the Bible. My standard, not very high. After all, I live in this age where the standard of knowing your Bible is pathetic, and I hold to that standard, I'm sure. If you're a clergyman, know your Bible, and you want to sort me out, I need to be sorted out, just write to me on my website. We'll be happy to get together, and then I can correct myself. And then my mom, you know, will be right again like she was when I was little. But uh, in any case, here you see we have a young fellow who's reigning in Judah, and so that's trouble. And it tells us he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Yea, verse 3, 2 Kings 16, this is the beginning of the end for Judah. What we have in literature from the beginning of the end to the end, the beginning of the end is something just past the climax, and it goes all the way down to the end. Well, we climax this story with David and Solomon. So this now is the denouement. Now, there's a literary term for you. This is the denouement of Judah as the story goes. Beginning right here, it's downhill fast from here. Those of you that don't know about denouements do know about old movies. You ever watch an old movie? Old movie keeps you riveted, keeps you riveted. The climax happens, and the movie ends in about 40 seconds. You ever notice that about old movies? I mean, the climax hits, and the movie ends in about 40 seconds. That's what's funny about old movies. With a piece of conversation, they sort out everything. They introduce all the characters in a hurry. These two are getting married. Those two are going to Japan. These two have decided to go to college and become astronauts. This one here is going to go to the jungle and be a missionary. And then the kids all are going to obey their parents, and the show's over. Well, here we're seeing the decline very quickly of Judah. And that's because... The king of Judah here, Ahaz, never underestimate what one man doing evil, how much he can ruin. That's one of the problems of life, is one man doing evil can ruin a lot, and one man doing good can't get very far. That's a true thing. But the grace of God is with that man who wants to hold out. And then the grace of God, God is so merciful, and God puts up with so much nonsense that uh, we can depend on him to be gracious to us. But this guy here didn't act anything like his father David. Nothing like that. Did not do right what was sight of the Lord his God, like David his father. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Now this way of the kings of Israel is a very specific way. It's not just a, it's a broad way, but it's a specifically broad way. And that is to say, it's the way that makes other people sin. 
The least you can do with your sins, if you're a leader, is have them to yourself. But invariably, leaders who fall go into the kind of sin that leads others into sin, and that's almost always a false religion. In the case of Israel, it is a false religion. People can survive all kinds of failures of men, but not when they build a system of religion. That is almost impossible for a society to withstand. Well, we're going to look at the religion that he chose in just a minute after this brief message. Well, what did this guy Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, what did he do? He walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and that means he selected, he picked a religion to practice. Now he picked a particular religion. You remember Ahab, he took them all. He took them all. He practiced all of them. He he said, well, let's get let's get the Baal thing going. That's good. I'm particularly going to be interested in the Baal thing, and I'll do that. But Jezebel, you and your 400 leaders of the of the Asherah, you can have that going too. But Ahaz picked a different religion, although all religion really is the same. And that's why ecumenicism or syncretism really works because all the religions really are the same. So people complain, they say to me, you know, what do you think of Roman Catholicism teaming up with Islam and Judaism and Shintoism, because I know the Pope went over to Japan and, and did some Shinto stuff. What do you think of that? And I say, well, I think that's fine. I, I think that's fine. I think that's just great. I think that's appropriate. They are all the same. So why don't they just all get along? They say, well, oh, don't you think that's not cruel? Well, of course that's not Christian. Of course that's not Christian. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is faith in facts. It's reality. Religion, man's way to God. Who cares what that is? That's just man's idea. Faith in Christ, that's God's way to man. That's a different deal. That's I want to be involved with that. Well, this guy, Ahaz, he says, well, I'm going to pick one here. And he picks this wicked, horrible, well, they're all wicked and horrible, but he picks, and he's the first guy to do it, he picks the god Molech, and it says that he made his son to pass through the fire according to the abominations of the heathen. Well, the abominations of the nations. One of the abominations of the nations was to make their children pass through the fire. Now, you say, well, what was that? Well, at the beginning, at the beginning, that is merely symbolic. It is a symbolic passing through the fire that they're sacrificed. In the different societies, they hop through fire rings or they jump over a campfire or whatever it is. But it's symbolic. It is actually has to do with sacrifice by fire, human sacrifice. Now, in its early stages, it's just a picture of it. But in its later stages, they'll practice it. And they'll sacrifice their children. And, of course, symbolically, I mean, our children are being sacrificed to the God of this world all the time. I mean, there are so many people that just hand their children over to the world. It's terrible. It's terrible. I spent part of my day, uh, much of my day today, trying to deal with a situation where a young man, and by the way, he's a young Christian man who I love, has been sacrificed to this world, just abandoned to the God of this world, just abandoned. Not his own doing. His own doing is his own problem. 
but I'm talking about abandoned by his family to the world. And he's not alone. He's just one that is very evident to me today as I speak, but one of millions of our children who are thrown to the God of this world. Millions of those who make their sons to pass through the fire, as it were, who practice religion and initiate their children into it. Brother, protect your children. It's your job. Brother, your foundational purpose in life, you're there to protect. Number one, play defense. Number one, play defense. You want to know how to raise your children? Defend them. Play defense against the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Play defense. Maybe you care to know that I homeschooled my children and that my grandchildren are all being homeschooled. Number one, it's defense. It's all about defense. You say, well, what about physics and chemistry? I didn't, I didn't learn that much of the, either one of those until I went to college, and then I chose not to learn much. Learned a little. Learned a little. I can still say covalent bond. As I told a friend, I can still stick my finger at a ripple tank. But what are you worried about, chemistry, physics? What are you worried about? Why aren't you worried about sacrificing your children to the moral abyss? Okay, you've heard it before. I'm off of preaching instead of teaching this scripture. And he burned incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. This is this young fella, young leader, and that's what young leaders do. And so this now, it's just not for himself, but he's causing Judah to sin. And so the Lord answers this kind of thing. See, the Lord can't speak to a leader like this because they're not in the Scriptures. They won't listen to the prophets. They're busy with their false religion. So the Lord can't speak to these people except for by circumstance. And if God has to speak to you by circumstance, let me tell you, you're a bit dull of hearing. Now, I know God sometimes moves you by circumstance, but generally when God's moving you by circumstances, they are what I'll call this, circumstances beyond your control. And those are nice to experience. A circumstance beyond your control where you really honestly realize this has nothing to do with me, that's just God moving you. God will move you. Every branch in Christ that bears fruit, he lifts it up excuse me, he cleanses it. He cleanses it. If you're not bearing fruit, he lifts it up, he moves you. So if you're not bearing fruit, he'll lift you up. According to John 15, what does that mean? Well, that means he'll move you circumstantially. Circumstances beyond your control. So that, what? You'll bear fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he'll cleanse. He'll clean you up. And uh, so here, though, God's trying to speak to this guy with circumstance, and he's using the Syrians to do it. So we read the Syrians. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to war, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. So now here this guy has got a coalition of Israel and Israel's enemy, Syria. Well, here's Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, and uh, they come up to to take Jerusalem. By the way, he likes the Syria. Israel likes the Syrians so much they're going to get some Syrians. So circumstantially, here's God trying to turn, I believe, Ahaz to himself because he's got all this trouble from outside. Now what he needs to do is turn to the Lord, as his ancestors did. Turn to the Lord, the Lord will receive him. Does he turn to the Lord? No. He turns to 
Tilglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria. Oh, he builds a bond with his future captor. Here, Ahaz sent messengers to Tilglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am thy servant and thy son. Oh, that is so sick. Here is the shameful, shameful thing. And this is what we do. This is what we do. We turn to the world and we say, I'm one of you. Oh, I'm convicted. And uh, so he turns to the Tiglath Pileser, king of Syria, Assyria, saying, On thy servant, thy son, come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord. Sure, he had no value for the house of the Lord, so he cannibalizes it. And this is a terrible thing, by the way. Now I'm meddling. This is what happens in churches. They have no value for the things of God, so they cannibalize, they destroy it. Say, ah, this is no value. Took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord. Well, the house of the Lord then was in Jerusalem. It's the temple. House of the Lord today, the church, which is his body. And he sent it for a present to the king of Assyria. It wasn't his to give. It's God's. And he took what was God's, and he gave it to the world. I'm reminded of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and God the things that are God's. This guy doesn't do that. He's so busy rendering to Caesar that he won't preserve that which is God's. And he's going to now, in order to please Caesar, he's going to render to Caesar the things that are God's. And God never told you to do that. Whose image and superscription are on you? Keep the children. Forget your money. But this is a guy who's exercised, right, to throw away that which is valuable and keep that which is worthless. The king of Assyria hearkened unto him. For the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried the people of it captive to Kerr and slew Raisin. Here now the Assyrian killed the Syrian king. Ah, maybe you think your enemy's enemy is your friend. Maybe that's the way you think. Say, well, I'll get my enemy to destroy my enemy. Well, your enemy's enemy is not your friend. And that's that's the mistake that, that Ahaz made. He thinks his enemy's enemy is his friend. And so Ahaz goes to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saw an altar that was at Damascus, and King Ahaz said to Uriah the priest, the fashion of the altar and the pattern of it according to all the workmanship thereof, and Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that the king Ahaz had sent from Damascus, so Uriah the priest made it against King Ahaz, came from Damascus. So here's a guy that goes and sees the religion of the Assyrians and says, well, these guys are powerful. I'll do like them. I'll be like the world. I'll go do like the French do. I'll go do like the British do. They're, they're abandoning the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll do like them. I'll do like the French do. I like their I like their cookies i like their hotels i'll do like them and uh and then he offers sacrifices on that and so this guy's going from bad to worse and and not only does he start burning his burnt offerings on this new altar that he makes right he kind of kind of creating his own religion now kind of going by the seat of his pants whatever he sees he loves these assyrians 
and uh, he even he even cannibalizes the brazen altar in front of the Lord. You remember the brazen altar? He 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 took the the sea. It says he takes the sea from the brazen altar. Well, the, or he takes the sea from the laver. It says the king Ahaz cut off the borders of the bases and removed the laver from off them and took down the sea from the brazen oxen that were under it. This is the laver. And put it upon a pavement of stones. And he destroys now the testimony of the Lord. He destroys the house of God. Really, he destroys the dwelling place of God. He destroys it. All pitch, all, all of that which will remind the children of Judah uh, who Jehovah is. He gets this all done in favor of his false religion. And uh, let me tell you, he's destroying the remembrance of the Lord. And so many have done that in the Christian church, destroyed the remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. I could go on for the rest of the time about what it means to remember the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's remembered in symbol form. The loaf and the cup. Brother, sister, how many of you even see the proper symbols that God gave us to remind us of the Lord Jesus Christ? And uh, how many of us really remember him in a way that's meaningful so that we examine ourselves to see that we're in the faith so that we keep a short account of our offenses with God so that we resolve our offenses one with another in light of the death, burial, resurrection, and soon coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that remembrance has been destroyed from the Christian scene, just as Ahaz did it. And what follows is moral decadence. Now, you remember that he even takes down the sea from the labor. You remember the sea, that's the, the thing we noted that was three times in circumference what it was in diameter. And uh, that, of course, we can get some mathematics out of that if we if we care to examine it. Now it tells us the rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And of course they are. You can read the book of Chronicles, first set Chronicles. We're not going to read those. The divine commentary on, we don't read those in the air. We look into them and bring some of the truth that's in there of the divine commentary on this, uh, these events. But Ahaz slept with his fathers, was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his stead. And now we get to Hezekiah. And now Hezekiah is a real turning point because Hezekiah is like our last hope. It looks like Hezekiah is going to be okay. Uh, we look at the life of Hezekiah, and it looks like Judah is actually going to recover from this evil man. But I want to tell you something. Once the evil sets in here in Judah, that's it. Once the evil sets in in Israel, that's it. Once the evil and the destruction of the testimony of the Lord uh, sets in in Christianity, that's it. So many Christians are waiting for the great revival that will sweep the whole world. The Bible doesn't talk about a great revival sweeping the whole world. It talks to us about the apostasy which is going to come, the falling away first. Now, you say, well, that is so negative. I'm looking for something better. Well, you're looking. Where are you looking? Where are you looking, brother, sister? Where are you looking at? Where do you see that? I see in the scriptures that evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. I see in the scriptures that the day of the Lord has not come yet, and it won't come until there's a falling away first. 
I see in the scriptures in the last days, men shall depart from the faith, many, many shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and teaching demons. That's what I see. I see in the scripture that a woman will leaven three measures of meal until the whole is leavened. I see in the scripture that a mustard seed is planted and a great tree is the result and the birds of the air lodge in it. I see in the scripture that God plants good wheat and an enemy comes along and and sows tares or that which is useless and poison in amongst the wheat and they both grow together till harvest. Now, I I would love to see revival, but revival, when it happens, is usually pretty localized. And I say that only theoretically because I've never seen revival. People talk about it here and there, go see this, go see that. ends up being a bunch of nuttiness. Now, I understand there was bona fide revival in the middle 70s in Belfast, Northern Ireland. I had a There was a fellow, an older man, that I corresponded with, and he told me that there was genuine revival just before the revived warfare broke out between the Protestants and the Catholics. That was in Belfast, very localized. I heard from another man who I believed said that there was a Canadian revival in the early 70s, for a brief time, like 1971-72. Well, that was short-lived, too, and very localized. Now you hear stories of distant places that you can't verify. Like, for example, you'll hear that there are great revivals going on in Africa. Well, I happen to have been, I happen to, the last decade, to have been in Africa, at least English-speaking East Africa, uh, quite a bit. And I've been to quite a number of places. I've been in Anglican churches. I've been in Presbyterian churches. I've been in Pentecostal churches. I've been in Baptist churches around East Africa, at least in Kenya, some in Uganda. I won't say I know all what's going on, but I know a fair amount of what's going on. And I hear these stories of great revivals and hundreds of thousands of people coming to Christ. And I'm telling you that, sure, there are very many, there are very many people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in these places. The poor have the gospel preached to them. And they believe readily in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I scarcely can find a church where the Bible's opened in these places. I cannot, I, I can hardly find a minister of the Word of God, and I have looked diligently, who isn't covetous and after only money. Now, I have found a few, very few, very few. And in their churches, there's hardly any Bibles. In fact, one of the one of the main things I have to do is just try to get Bibles into the churches, just... They're readily available. It's not like there aren't Bibles around, but just get them to use them. And you say, well, they don't have Bibles. They can't afford them. Sure they can. I go into church, and I say, you've got a pair of shoes on. What are you doing with a pair of shoes and not a Bible? And they look and say, well, that's right. I should get a Bible. You, know, you can get a Bible. Well, will you give me one? No, I won't. Will you buy one? Well, yes, I will. Okay, you buy a Bible then. Now, you say, well, why don't you give them Bibles? I don't give them Bibles because they can buy their Bible. I'll give them three-quarters of a Bible. They can buy it for 25%. Now, don't tell me there are great revivals going around the world. What is going on in the world is an abandonment of faith, 
just like Ahaz did, just like here it happening in the in the books of the kings, and uh, it's rewardable today just to hold the faith. So won't you hold the faith? That, that's the key. Remember now that Israel teamed up against Judah with the Syrians, and they were whooped by the Assyrians. Now what that ended up being, because uh, the king of Assyria, with the help and money of uh, Judah, destroyed the king of Syria, what do you think happened to the king of Israel? He was on the losing side. We don't know what it's like to be on the losing side of a war here in America, at least not contemporarily. Now, if you're around in 1812, I suppose you knew what it was like to be on the in on the losing side of a war. After all, people say, well, we lost the war in Vietnam. Well, not as wars occur. As wars truly occur, we lost the War of 1812 when the capital was burnt down. And what did the British do? I don't know. They took over our country, sort of. I don't know. Something like that. But we lost that war. But not like Israel lost this war. They have a, a much more hostile enemy here. And uh, the king of Israel becomes the servant of the king of Assyria. He becomes like a junior king, which is no king, really. The twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, 2 Kings 17, began Hoshea, the son of Elah, to reign in Samaria over Israel nine years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel that were before him. And he wasn't quite as bad as the others, but he still did evil. And against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hosea became his servant and gave him presents. So he's put under tribute. And the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hosea. So he, he was put under tribute, and he tried to find his way out of that, and he conspired against the king of Assyria because he sent messengers to the king of Egypt. So even in Israel in its affliction, as it's beginning to come into captivity here, in the Assyrian captivity, not sitting still like they should, not turning to the Lord, but turning to Egypt, and uh, their easy captivity, captivity nonetheless, became much worse. And so here now we're seeing Israel no longer a nation, no longer independent, no longer under God, but now under the king of Assyria. So he sent messengers to Sabako, or uh, So, here called So, king of Egypt, and brought no present to the king of Assyria as he done year by year. He fails to bring tribute. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison, and the king of Assyria came up throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. So this king, trying to get out from underneath the king of Assyria, went down to Egypt. Egypt's always down, and it gets a lot worse for him. Oh, we could talk on and on here as we have Isaiah the prophet in vain and telling him what to do as he fails to do the right things. And uh, the children of Israel sinned against the Lord their God, it tells us. And they walked in the statutes of the heathen. They feared other gods and not the God of Israel, and children of Israel did secretly those things which were not right with the Lord their God. They built high places in their cities, from Tower of the Watchmen to the fence cities, and they set up images and groves in every high hill and under every green tree. And so the whole society was corrupt in Israel. 
And there they burned incense in all the high places, as did the heathen whom the Lord carried away before them, and wrought wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. For they served idols, wherefore the Lord had said unto them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets. All the prophets. The testimony against them is going to come from Isaiah. It's going to come from Ezekiel. It's going to come from Jeremiah. All the prophets who say, Turn you from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I command your fathers, which I sent you by my servants, the prophets. Notwithstanding, they would not hear, but hardened their necks like to the neck of their fathers that did not believe in the Lord their God. Now, I'll just read on here in verse 15 of Second Kings 17. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and his testimonies he testified against them. And they followed futility and became futile and went after the heathen that were round about them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they would not do like them. And they left all the commandments of the Lord their God and made them molten images, two calves, and made a grove, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served Baal, and they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire, and they used divination and enchantments, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel, and removed them out of his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah only. And that is exactly what happened. Listen. You can talk about the Assyrians, you can talk about the captivity, but it was God who sold Israel into bondage. God put them there, God left them there, and he did it for cause. So was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day. Now, this horrible captivity of Israel... Though there is some relief, though it had been, it gets sometimes better and sometimes worse, never ceases. There is no remedy for it except the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and Israel's reception of him. And as we continue to look now at the captivity of Israel and the soon coming captivity of Judah, we hope that there are lessons to be learned and there will be lessons to be learned but we also know that not all, not even many, will learn those lessons.